You're listening to the First Baptist Church Broken Arrow podcast. To learn more about the church, visit us at fbcba.org. Today's sermon comes from our pastor, Dr. Matt Brooks. Bibles to me, the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6. My name is Matt Brooks. I'm the senior pastor here at First Baptist Church of Broken Arrow. What a joy it is of mine to be studying the scriptures with you as we are once again led by the Spirit to go to the book of Acts to walk through, specifically Acts chapter 6 through 9, in a new series that we're simply calling Glory Road. In 1991, I was around 10 years old, and without question, the most remarkable basketball player on the planet at the time was a man by the name of Michael Jordan. And Gatorade wanted to crystallize the dominance of Michael Jordan. So what they did is they put together what now marketers have looked back now 35 years removed from this date is one of the greatest marketing campaigns of all time, the Be Like Mike campaign. And what they did is they took a minute commercial and they began to show these amazing highlights of Michael Jordan just dunking, making shots that no one else in the world could do. But then they would naturally interlude those with shots of him on a playground, playing with guys like you and me and kids of all ages. And you begin to watch this video and you begin to think, wait a minute, I can be like Mike. And at the same time in the background was this song that said something like this. See, sometimes I dream that he is me. You see, you've got to see that that's all I dream to be. Sometimes I move. Sometimes I groove. Like Mike. If I could be like Mike. And then, you know, some awesome lady in the background, I want to be, I want to be like Mike, right? And you were like, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. And so myself and millions of other kids would go outside in their driveways and they would have a basketball in one hand and a Gatorade in the other, lemon, lime, fruit punch, represent. And then we would, for hours upon hours, we would play basketball trying to be like Mike. And humbly, your pastor was pretty good. You know, I'd lower that goal down about eight foot and behind the back, passes, Shot after shot, thunder dunks. Most of the time, I wouldn't even hit the rim. And of course, we would just lower the goal a little bit more, right? I just wanted to be like Mike, not anyone else. You see, that commercial capitalized on the power of imitation. You see, we are constantly being influenced and adapting our personalities or behaviors, either intentionally or unintentionally, based upon the pattern of others. 
That is why all of these commercials are intentional in the regard of movie stars or athletes or even just common day folks of taking things that you and I do every single day and yet perpetuating that as a way of life. Well, I want to eat this because so-and-so eats this. I want to wear this because so-and-so wears this. I want to drive this because so-and-so wears this. Think about this. What we wear, what we like, what we do, what we say, how we think, imitation is often the first and strongest tool used to enhance our thinking and behavior. That God has so wired us as we look to others, we begin to, even in our cognition, want to imitate others. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 5. He says, therefore, as beloved children of God, be imitators of God. Be like those who follow Christ. In other words, be like Christ. And so as we come to Acts chapter 6 and 9, we're going to study in these weeks all the way through Easter the outward movement of God's people from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria as they imitate Christ. Three primary characters come to the forefront. Stephen, Philip, and Paul. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the examples of these men and I'm going to challenge all of us as we have what God has for us that we would walk down this glory road and that we would be like Christ. That we would be intentional in our movement toward what God has for us and we would be like Christ. Our creative team has put together a devotion that walks along, right alongside this sermon. If you're interested in that this week, as you walk for Christ, text the word glory to 45776. Now, the book of Acts has no parallel in the entire New Testament. Acts details to us the life and faithful mission of Christ's church under the spirit-led control of God the Father in the age of the apostles. The book of Acts is written by a man by the name of Luke. Luke was an infamous historian. He was also the apostle Paul's personal physician, traveling companion, and close friend. And Luke masterfully, chronologically captures over 30 years of the early life of the church after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remarkably, Acts encompasses 28 chapters. It has six separate sections. It has over a thousand verses. It is approximately 14% of the entire New Testament. And you and I are going to have our hearts and minds overwhelmingly in 2023 to seeing the Holy Spirit move through God's people in the book of Acts. Now in Acts chapter 1, the risen Christ appears to his followers. He ascends to the right hand of God as the mighty king of the universe. In Acts chapters 2 through 5, Luke records to us the dynamic coming of the Holy Spirit then, the explosive growth and intimate fellowship of Christ's church, the ministry of Peter, and the faithful witness of God's people to specifically Jews and Christ's followers in Jerusalem. However, when we come to Acts chapter 6, things begin to change. I'll remind you that historians tell us that there are more than likely now 25,000 people actively attending and participating in God's church in Jerusalem by the time of Acts chapter 6. Obvious in light of that truth then, the apostles could no longer handle the entire workload of the church themselves. 
physical needs were outweighing spiritual needs. And so they administratively took upon themselves an intentionality. They began to add some structure to the Lord's church. In fact, did you realize that in Acts chapter 6, the word disciple appears for the first time in the book of Acts? You see, these Christ followers, as they were following Christ, they were living like Christ. And as they were imitating Christ, they were sacrificially and generously selling their land and their estates and their possessions. They were then taking weekly alms and they were giving it to the apostles who were then distributing to those who had need. In fact, you can read about this historically in Acts chapter 2, verse 45, and Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 37. It was clear the Lord was moving among his people. And so the apostles entrusted the church to begin to identify seven specific men in Acts chapter 6 who would then prayerfully be appointed as deacons in this church. And they would serve in administering food and caring for the widows. You can read about this in Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 5. Now I'll remind you historically that these men who were characterized as deacons served in this role more informally than formally. They were displaying a pattern for future deacons to emulate in their faithfulness to what God had assigned for them. Now, these men weren't necessarily serving in the formal office of a deacon found in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1. No, these were faithful, servant, godly men who were chosen to do exactly what the Lord had laid on their heart to serve his church at this specific time. Now think about that for a minute. There were 25,000 people in this church The apostles entrusted the church to find seven men. And from 25,000 came seven. And the first deacon, the chief of all deacons in Jerusalem, was an incredible servant leader by the name of Stephen. You see, it was Stephen who would have an unparalleled impact upon the people of God as he served and loved and imitated the Son of God. It is the narrative of Stephen that is now a major turning point in the book of Acts. And I want to talk to you about today, through the life of Stephen, how you can be like Christ, just as he was. With that in mind, why don't we give our hearts and minds this morning to Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Let's meet this man formally of God by the name of Stephen. Look at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen was a Hellenist, which means that he was a Greek-speaking Jew. His name comes from a word, Stephanos, which simply means a crown. You see, in Luke's day, there were different contests or ways in, in which people could demonstrate their loyalty and vitality to an emperor, to a king. And so at the end of a race or after a tremendous achievement or victory on the battle, the king in front of all the people would provide a Stephanus, would provide a crown that he would lay upon the victor, that he would lay upon the victorious general, that he would lay upon the benefactor who provided such substance to this society. And then in front of all to see, the victor would then remove the crown and give it back to the king. And that is exactly who Stephen is as you read the book of Acts. He is a faithful follower of Christ, just like you and I. He'd received this gospel of Christ, and he gave his life to what mattered most for Christ. And he laid these gifts, and he laid these talents, 
And he gave these opportunities and he put him right back at the feet of Jesus Christ. And so that is why Luke, one of the most copious historians that antiquity has ever known, said that Stephen himself was full of faith and wisdom in Acts 6.3. He's mentioned again as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit in Acts 6.5. Obviously, Stephen's life was filled with faith. He was controlled by what he believed. Stephen continually trusted God fully. He focused on what God wanted him to do, not what others wanted him to do. He simply lived accordingly, and he left the results to God. Are you doing the same? You see, whatever fills you, controls you, and consumes you. So what are you filling your life with? Maybe a better question, what are you becoming? Are you becoming more like Christ? Are you becoming more like someone else? I have an annual physical every year, and wouldn't you know it, by God's grace and providence, it was this week. And so I have been from January 1st, so watching my diet and getting outside, a little bit less bacon. I've lost eight pounds by God's grace since January 1st. And all of it really is in preparation for this physical I give. And so, you know, you know you have these physicals. You, you go to a doctor and he asks you all these questions and you don't hope he doesn't ask you any more questions, right? And what I'm finding is God's sense of humor, the older you get, the more questions they ask. And so then afterward, you, you take these series of tests and, you know, they, they go and they check your heart and, you know, they, they check your breathing and your lungs and then you got to give blood. And I also realize that the older you get, it seems like every decade they add another capsule of blood you got to fill. And so I filled out, showing up the other day and there were four capsules that I had to fill. Now, that's not necessarily my thing. Some of you, blood doesn't bother you at all. It doesn't necessarily bother me. I just don't care for it. I don't want to know what's going on, needles and everything else. And so the lady who masterfully orchestrated this was a lady by the name of Nina. And so I show up and she says, Dr. Books. And I said, yes, that's me. And she says, come forward. And I said, hey, that accent, that's not Southeast Oklahoma, is it? And she begins to tell me that no, she's from Russia. And that her and her family had originally moved from Russia to Washington. And they've been in Washington a little bit. Things are a little interesting on the west part of our country, if you haven't noticed. And so then they moved to Oklahoma. And she'd been here about three years. And so I'm sitting there, gets annoying Nina a little bit while she's kind of getting ready to take my blood. And I said, how would you summarize Oklahoma? Here's what she said. You ready for this? Winter, good. Summer, bad. And I said, Nita, that's pretty good. And she started laughing. Even her laugh had an accent. <laughs> and so I said, so Nita, how long have you been in the state of Oklahoma? And she said, oh, right about three years. And I said, Nina, what do you think of Brahms? And she looked at me and goes, very good. And I said, Nita, we're going to get along great. But I said, just so you know, I, I get a little uncomfortable with this part right here. And so I'm no longer, I'm going to be able to, to look you in the eye. And, and she stops me. And she pats my arm. You know what she says? She goes, look to light. And so I looked to the light in the background, and we continued our conversation. And before you know it, I was done. And I thanked her so much for all that she's doing. And it was obvious that the Lord had given her a gift. And I invited her to our church. And if there's anything that we can do to help you in your experience in Oklahoma, that's what we're here for. But as I was leaving, I was thinking, that's it. You know, that, that's what we need to do. Whatever fills you, controls you, and consumes you, then look to the light. Have a diligent focus on Christ, the light of the world. Fill your life with him. Talk with him. 
connect with him. Stephen did, and frankly, the world has never been the same. You see, Stephen was full of everything a follower of Christ should be full of, even at the end of his life, as he was the first Christian martyr. Stephen would do all inspiring signs and wonders, even though he wasn't an apostle. Even though he wasn't a prophet, he was a profound preacher of the word of God. You see, God would use Stephen's preaching in his life to spread the gospel to the entire world. It wasn't Paul first, it was Peter. It wasn't Paul second, it was Stephen. And I believe it's from the overflow of Stephen's witness, Stephen's preaching, that God would use as a foundation for the apostle Paul to accept Christ. We'll get to more of that in a minute. His ministry was brief, but his noble and courageous impact was profound. You see, Stephen's example shows us how to live for Christ and die for Christ. It is this example that you and I can take with hope as we continue to live out this life and follow Jesus by being like Jesus. Is there any wonder now where Luke tells us and Stephen was full of grace and power? Underline this phrase in your Bible. Did you realize that this phrase is only found right here in the book of Acts? And it's not of Peter, it's not of James, it's not of the Apostle Paul, it's of Stephen. What does it mean? You see, I believe that verse 8 is, is not referring to the salvific favor that Stephen received by faith in salvation, but both the divine enablement and character of righteousness and graciousness that Stephen displayed and possessed in his life. Not only to those in the church, but those outside the church. In fact, even those who would stone him, as we study Acts chapter 7 next week in verses 59 and 60. That he was like Jesus, asking for these men forgiveness. Asking for these men to take heart the gospel, even as they were taking his life. Is it any wonder then that Stephen did great signs among the people? You see, this same grace and power that filled Stephen is available to you. That this same grace and power that God used through Stephen to change the world, God can use in you. You see, if we want to be full of faith and power, we need to be daily filled by him. Are you full this morning? In thinking of this truth, I was thinking of one of the most watched videos in 2021 on YouTube. And it was of the grandeur and elegance of, you ready for this? A Rolls Royce Wraith. You ever heard of this car? One of the finest automobiles the world has ever known. V12 engine, 717 horsepower, goes zero to 60 in 4.18 seconds. It is available in a handful of strategic intentional colors for the common price of $311,000. If you want things really souped up, it's right at $718,000. But this video was trending, not because of the elegance and magnificence of this car, but because it was this automobile that caused one of the most congestive intersections in all of Europe to be a traffic jam that literally was trending all around the world. 
You see, the owner of one of these cars was heading to the gas station and at a critical time, right in the middle of the road, ran out of gas. And so these people, instead of helping him push his car to the gas station, they stopped and got their pictures taken with this car. This car was trending for all the wrong reasons. It had a V12 engine, 717 horsepower. It retails anywhere from 311,000 to 718,000, but it had no gas. It's a wonderful place to take your picture. Are you on empty this morning? What are you filling your life with? Better who are you filling your life with? May you be filled from his word. May you be nourished as you pray. May you be encouraged as you connect to him. And may God do a magnificent work in you as you continue to be just like Christ, full of grace and power. See, Stephen is the first individual in the book of Acts who wasn't an apostle, but yet was described as working miracles among the people. And see, sadly, some who were gathering in these synagogues, they didn't like that, did they? In fact, they began to rise up and challenge Stephen's authority and leadership. In fact, look at verse 9 and 10. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and even those from Cilicia and Asia, they began to rise up, dispute with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit in which he was speaking. Now, historians tell us that there were right at 500 synagogues in Jerusalem at the time of the book of Acts. Now, remember, according to the Talmud, a synagogue only needed 10 men to be a synagogue. So by nature, some of these synagogues became boys' clubs, country clubs, for men of stature and wisdom to hang out. Now, synagogues historically were developed between the Old Testament and the New Testament, while God's people were in captivity. Overwhelmingly, the synagogue was a place of instruction and worship and prayer and reading the scriptures. And it was the be synagogues that were the epicenter of community life in the book of Acts. Now, there could be as many as five synagogues listed in verse nine. Let me point out just a couple. Number one, the synagogue of the freedmen included Jewish believers who were once slaves of the Romans in North Africa, and in Asia. And so these men and women who were slaves or descendants of slaves had accepted Christ and were liberated in Christ. And they began to work their way back to Jerusalem to now freely worship Christ, praise God. Additionally, Paul himself was a Sicilian Jew and he may have attended one of these synagogues. In fact, Paul, the Saul of Tarsus, may have been the one there was having this ongoing debate with Stephen in verse 9. You say, well, what did they debate? You know, we don't know specifically, but based upon the allegations mentioned in verses 11 and 14, in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, the debate probably entailed, are you ready for this? The deity of Christ. The relationship between the old covenant of law and sacrifice and now the new covenant of grace and faith in Christ. Thirdly, they probably debated on the sufficiency of Christ as the Messiah. 
Finally, the assurance of salvation based upon not the works or customs of men, but on faith in Christ. The tense in verse 9 tells to us that they debated this over and over and over again. Hour by hour, issue by issue, synagogue by synagogue. So Stephen, from the Old Testament, we're telling these individuals, you ready for this? Who is Jesus? What Jesus does that no one else can do. Why Jesus and Jesus alone is enough. How they can daily depend upon Jesus. And why Jesus then must be the greatest treasure of every heart. You see, before someone cares about what you believe, they want to know why you believe it. If someone was to ask you who is Jesus, what would you tell them? If someone was to ask you, what does Jesus do that no one else can do, what would you tell them? If someone was to ask you, why is Jesus enough? Why can I trust Jesus and depend upon Jesus in all things? Why must Jesus be my greatest treasure? What would you say? And from the overflow of Stephen's experience with Jesus, from the overflow of what now Stephen, inspired by the Holy Spirit, had taken from not the New Testament because it wasn't written yet, but from the Old Testament, he began to display to them the answers of life because God had answered in Stephen. And he found that all of life was found in the who of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And can I tell you that we are still asking these questions today, that there are still these questions that people are asking in their hearts and in our homes and in our schools and in our workplaces and at the ball field, and God sends us to such people that we from the scriptures and from the joy of our salvation can describe to them anywhere from who is Jesus to how we depend upon Jesus to why Jesus is our greatest treasure. Now be encouraged by this truth. The Bible is clear in verse 10 that no one could publicly withstand or refute the truth of Stephen's powerful and persuasive speech. You want to know why? Because this wasn't the words of men. This wasn't the words of traditions or customs. No, this word was from the scripture. This word found its end in Christ, which means it was spirit-led. It was Jesus-centered. It was gospel-focused. This wasn't just knowledge. This was wisdom. And God would use this wisdom to change some of these men's hearts. However, some, specifically the leaders of these Hellenistic Jews, begin to secretly instigate, begin to hatch up a plan to silence Stephen, according to verse 10. Uh, we've been in an 80s, 90s theme all morning. We might as well continue that. Uh, when I was a kid, one of my favorite movies was Karate Kid. Remember this movie? It's this movie of a high schooler who's in New Jersey from New England, and his mom gets a job in California, and so he's got to go all the way from New Jersey to California, and things really aren't going very well. He tries to play sports, and you know, soccer doesn't work out, and you know, he tries to get involved, and you know, it's just new students. It's just, they're just different, different part of the world. And, and so he begins to kind of go through this journey, and there's a specific group of boys that are participating in karate. 
And they're part of the Cobra Kai Dojo, which has three main things. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. I've actually known some churches like this. Yikes, look out, right? And so they begin to see that Daniel, the kid, is, he's growing in popularity. People are starting to notice him, and they didn't like that. And so then they attacked Daniel. And so Daniel was living at this apartment complex where the facilities manager was kind of this eccentric old man that you knew that, man, there's way more to this guy. And Mr. Miyagi had a heart for Daniel. He saw his potential. He saw his gifts and his power that was available. And he began to teach him karate and millions of other kids. In fact, I don't know about you, but man, I had many skirmishes with couches and pillows in my living room based upon what Mr. Miyagi was teaching Daniel. And so they finally get to this tournament, this all-valley tournament. And Daniel's been training with Mr. Miyagi. And Daniel's good. He's really good. In fact, one by one, he starts going through this competition. And finally, in about the quarterfinal, semifinal round, he gets matched up with one of the second top two fighters at Cobra Kai. And the sensei at Cobra Kai, he knows this isn't going to go well. And so about halfway through the match, he calls timeout. And he tells this kid to cheat. He tells him to sweep the leg. The kid is startled immediately. He says, I can beat this guy. Sensei says, no, you can't. Sweep the leg. You got a problem with that? So this kid cheats. He worked outside the rules. That's exactly what's happening here. None of what these religious leaders say is true. Nothing. None of what these men did was of God. None. You say, well, what does that look like? Look at verses 11 through 14. And then they secretly instigated men who would say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him, seized him, brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, do these accusations sound familiar in the New Testament? They're almost identical to the very same structure that was used against Christ in his interaction with Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin in Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. Here is Stephen facing these demeaning accusations that were centered upon three basic premises. Look at verses 11 through 14. Number one, they falsely claim that Stephen had spoke blasphemy against Moses and God. Number two, that he had blasphemed against the law. You see, Stephen was teaching that Jesus fulfilled the law, that the law is annulled once and for all by faith in Christ, not the works of men or customs. That the law never saved a thing. That all the law did was remind you once and for all that you need God. You need a Savior. That a Savior comes not in what we do. Comes not in the legislation of men. But in rather the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Not our works, but his work. Not our lives, but his life. Not faith in what we do, but faith in what he has done. And they used this against him. They lied. And thirdly, they then accused him of blasphemous words against the destruction of the temple in Jewish customs in verses 13 and 14. He said, well, what's the significance of this? Now, I'll remind you historically that the Jews had taught that God's presence dwelt in the temple. That God's presence appeared in a physical location. You see, then they sought to discredit Stephen by noting his affirmation of Jesus' sayings. Remember in John chapter 2, verse 19, and Mark chapter 14, verse 58, where Jesus applied the temple to himself, where Jesus says he was the true temple. He would say such profound things as, I tell you that you see this temple will be destroyed and in three days will be built again. Speaking of his body, speaking of who he was. And Stephen, affirming this gospel message, immediately met opposition, specifically from Hellenists who were loyal to the law, who foolishly and emotionally were worked up by these false allegations, so they seized Stephen in verse 12. Consequently, upon his arrest, he was taken before the Sanhedrin. Then the very people who claimed Stephen was blasphemous in breaking the law, broke the Old Testament law by bearing false witness about Stephen in verse 13. And so now Stephen is before the Sanhedrin. And he stands before this council who would in a semi-circle fashion looked intently right at him. And Luke tells us in verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in this council saw that his face was like a face of an angel. You see, Stephen would have known how the Sanhedrin unjustly treated the apostles before him in Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 41. Stephen would have known the injustice. He would have known their actions. He would have known henceforth his fate. But yet his face isn't troubled, is it? His face isn't anxious. No, his face is like a face of an angel in such evil. Can I tell you how rare this is and unique this is in the Bible? What does it mean? See, I'll remind you in the Old Testament that when Moses was preparing God's people for the promised land, Moses began to instruct them from the word of God and thus the law of God about God's grandeur, about God's mightiness and power. And he reminded them in Numbers chapter 6, verse 25, that for those who would take a Nazarite vow, who, those who would consecrate, set apart their lives and live for God, that blessing would be upon them, that the face of God would shine upon them, for his blessing and mercy would be in them. In fact, it was one of the greatest prayers of the psalmist who says in Psalm 67, verse 1, Blessed are you, O Lord, above all things. May your face shine upon your people through your grace and mercy. I'll also remind you that throughout the Old Testament, it is a very rare occurrence where the actual face of God was on any other human being who wasn't Jesus Christ. Do you remember one individual? 
Do you remember Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 30? How he somehow reflected the glory of God upon his face after receiving the law of God on Mount Sinai? So much so that the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 that the people were fearful because the literal divine presence of God was upon Moses. The glow of Moses confirmed God was with Moses. Mo was all a glow. What's the point? Simply this. It suggests that God's endorsement, that God's inspiration, that God's vindication was upon Moses. Was upon Stephen. You see, Stephen shined because God was with him. Stephen shined because his focus wasn't on the greatness of his circumstances, but rather the greatness of his God. And consequently, God put his indelible glow, his divine presence, upon Stephen. So much so that even in the face of such heinous evil, his face was like an angel. Can I tell you by God's grace that his presence is still available to you? That you can have an endowment of this power and of this faith? You say, how? You see, when we receive the peace of God in Christ, we will always have the presence of God for Christ. That's how. It is an acknowledgement of faith in the very presence of God in us. It is a conviction that is a result of us committing our lives to Jesus and disciplining ourselves to imitate and be like Jesus. The word peace with God. That our eternal fate has been sealed. That our future is secured. And thus anything else that God has for us is just a means of grace as we continue to love and follow him. And can I tell you, this is what the world needs. I mean, with this pandemic, everything has changed, has it not? Everything. But did you also realize that according to Barna, now 76% of all Americans after the pandemic are open to the things of God. May we be people of faith who can walk through, by faith, open doors. Who can share this faith with open hearts and may just like Stephen have an impact that changes the world around us. You are often the first Jesus that anyone will ever see. And before people are ready to hear of God's gospel and goodness and glory, they must first see it. May they see people of faith, full of grace and power, who desire above all things that in any circumstance in life, we don't want to be like anybody else. We want to be like Christ. Oh, what a glory road for those who do so. If you are encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe to hear other messages. 
For more information about our church, be sure to visit us online at fbcba.org. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and always remember, you are loved.